Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we're reading through Genesis, and the reason why is because it is the origin of all things. Everything we see around us, every, everything that we see, everything that we touch, the, the, every person around us, this book tells us our origin, our story. It tells us where we came from. It gives us a good solid theological foundation of how we're supposed to see the world around us and how we're supposed to see each other. Because if we follow what this book is telling us, every single person in this room, look around for, look for this is a weird pastor thing, look around at the people around you, look at, look at the people next to you. If we're following what Genesis is telling us, all of us are from the same family. And it matters not where you came from, or the color of your skin, or how much money you have in your bank account, It matters not how much education you have or what your career is now. The value that you hold as a human being stems back from the fact that God put himself inside of creation when he made man. He breathed into us. He made us image bearers of God and set us apart from all creation. And we therefore, from that moment forward, have a responsibility to treat each other with the same dignity that God sees fit to put his image inside of. That's why this is important for us. It tells the story of all the origin of the world, but it also tells us the deep levels of God's grace and faithfulness to his creation that many times he could have just wiped it all away and started over, but he saw fit to be faithful to his creation and love them and provide a way to fix what they broke. So let's get into the story. We went last week, Genesis one through three. We're gonna pick up in chapter four today with the story of Cain and Abel. Now the interesting, as you're turning there, we'll put it up on the screen also. The interesting thing about reading a book that we're all familiar with, because it, most of us, when January rolls around and we start making those New Year's resolutions, a lot of us sign up for those Bible reading plans, you know what I'm talking about? And you get, pr- you get maybe about t- 12 chapters in before you get tired of it and you stop doing it. So most of you have read Genesis, at least the ten, first 10 chapters, many, many times. This is a familiar story. So the, 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 the responsibility that you you have in your own heart is to know that something that is familiar can still be powerful. All right, that's important because as humans, we are convinced that the more we look at something, the more we figured it out, the more we understand it, the more we know it, the less we need it. But that's not true. The more you behold things, it becomes not just something you're trying to figure out, but almost like a mirror that reflects the true, real you. And so when you're reading something that you're familiar with, don't go so fast that you miss the beauty and the challenge in it. Read familiar things with fresh eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you through it so that you can see things that you missed before so that you can be challenged in ways you didn't know that you needed to be. Amen? So let's go to Genesis 4. I'm going to read the first couple verses to kind of lay a foundation of what's happening, and then we'll talk a little bit, read a little bit. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and conceived and bore Cain. 
saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So over a course of time, they saw fit to give back to the Lord. This is something instinctive in them. We're not told that they're commanded to do this. This is instinctive inside of them that they want to give back to the Lord what they feel has been given to them. And Cain, he gives just some of the fruit, whatever he can find. And Abel makes sure that he gives of the firstborn, the, the, the best that he had. So verse five, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard So they bring their offering to the Lord. I think I may have skipped a verse. Verse four. So Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, pause there. Adam and Eve have two sons. Now, we, not all of their family lineage is recorded. Much later, and we don't know how many years this all took place, Adam, I think he lived like 930 years old, so he had lots of kids, and those kids had kids, and those kids had kids. So uh, at the time that you start seeing these kids start getting married, it's not like they're marrying their sister, all right? There's multiple descendants, and Adam and Eve's responsibility is to populate the earth, and there's, there's multiple, multiple people everywhere. But out of that family lineage, we get called out two kids, Cain and Abel. We know that Cain was a farmer. We know that Abel, his responsibility was to be a shepherd. And both of them bring their offerings to the Lord. And we're told that the Lord regarded one of their offerings, but didn't regard the other. Now that is an interesting word, the word regard. That word regard in Hebrew, the direct translation means to gaze or behold. It means to look at. So the writer of Genesis, who most people think is Moses, is telling us that when these two boys brought their offering to the Lord, the Lord didn't even look at one of their offerings. Now do you understand why Cain got so angry? The Lord comes up and he looks at Abel's offering and he's pleased and he doesn't even look at the other one. This created, we're told, chapter four, this anger inside of Cain. But the question I have, and the question I, I, I think that you should have also, is why did the Lord not regard Cain's offering? Well, when you go to the New Testament, you find that Cain is referenced a lot. And you find, as you start putting things together, that the reason why the Lord didn't even look at Cain's was because Cain gave out of obligation or necessity. He gave because he had to. He gave because he was told to. Or he gave because he felt the sense of duty. And if he didn't, God was going to get him. He had to do this. While Abel gave out of gratitude and joy. He wanted 
to give. He wanted to give back to the Lord. And these two boys reflect two um, personalities or, or two aspects that are echoed all throughout Scripture. And the idea is that Cain reflects this personality of ownership and Abel reflects this personality of stewardship. And those are the two contrasting postures that you see all throughout the um, New Testament and the Old Testament. This idea that everything that you do in life comes down to this fundamental principle. Do I think that I own this stuff and this world and my job and my money and my kids and my mortgage. Is this mine? Is this my ministry? Or is this God's stuff? Is this his house? Is this his money? Is this his clothes? Is this his hairstyle? Is this his parenting style? Is this his worldview and values? Every decision you make boils down to that posture. Do you think that you are the one who can call the shots or do you think that he calls the shots and your responsibility is to be a good steward of what he has told you to do? Everything boils down to that. And these two boys, they, they, that from the very beginning of Genesis, they kick off this idea that you will find all throughout Scripture. This contrast between what, who owns this? Is it you or is it him? And that, that definition of ownership, it rules all the decisions that you make in your life. It rules where you spend your money. It rules where you spend your time. Is this, is this calendar, is this free time my time? Or does all of this time belong to the Lord and I'm supposed to be a good steward of it because one day I will be held accountable for it. Because the book of Revelation tells us that every single thing you do is being recorded somewhere and one day it's gonna come out. So the question is, if, if I'm the owner of this, then I don't have to answer for any of that. Or I am a steward and I will have to answer for that. Well, the Lord knew Cain's heart and motive and what he did because he knew Cain's posture was that he warned him about sin. And the way he warns him is really, really interesting. He tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door. This is really interesting because the Lord, when he talks to Cain, he's personifying sin almost like it's a beast that's ready to pounce on him. It's this thing that wants to take advantage, that wants to devour. And we see this other places too. James says this in James 1 verses 14 through 15. I won't put this on the screen, but I'll read it to you. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And then those desires, when they have conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So the Lord is warning Cain about sin, but the Holy Spirit is also warning us this morning about sin because it hasn't gone anywhere. It's still prevalent in our society, in our culture, in our families, in your heart, and it comes out in your mouth. All of us have desires 
things that we want so badly, things that we're convinced, well, I was born this way, so it must be right. Don't you know that David told us that we were born in iniquity? So even the desires of your heart are deceitful and wicked above all other things. You were born into brokenness, so don't trust your own heart. You can't say, well, this is just the way I am. Because if you were born this way and this just the way you are, then Jesus wouldn't tell you that you have to be born again. It's not good enough that you were just born this way. You have to be born again. You have to let your old desires and your old way of thinking and the old way that things kind of compartmentalize how you're supposed to think and you were grown and you're raised in this. But so so my, my mom and my dad taught me this. You have to put all of that stuff aside into the grave and be born again. You have to think differently. You have to put all of those selfish desires aside because if you don't, those desires are crouching at the door and they will start tempting you and they will, they will, get, they will, they will lure your, desire, your desires, they'll lure you away and get you to a place where it will conceive something inside of you and it will give birth to sin and death. This is not just Cain, this is all of us, all of us. All of us want to satisfy the own desires in our heart, but the Bible's telling us that satisfying those desires is mutiny against God and his ways. Every time you say, I just, I want it my way, what you're saying is, God, I'm on the opposite team of you. We are at war against each other. I want things my way. I want the world to see things my way. What you're saying is you're planting a flag in the sand and you're aligning yourself with the kingdom of darkness. That's what you're doing. Make no mistake, Genesis 4 is clear. All selfish desires lead to sin and sin is a death sentence. Now we know that sin leads to death, 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 like you're not going to be breathing anymore. You're gonna be put into a grave but it's far worse than that. It leads to eternal punishment. It leads to death here and right now. It robs you of fruitfulness. It causes you to live in the darkness, separated from community and your friends. And that's what's coming for Cain. Go to verse eight. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, when they were in the field. And Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, we know that story, and you've read it a hundred times, but just pause for a minute. This brother murdered his own brother. He killed his own flesh and blood an image bearer of God. He removed his life from him and spilled his blood in the ground that Cain pulls crops out of. And the Lord said to Cain, where's, your, where's Abel, your brother? Now, did the Lord not know? No, the Lord knows. Why does the Lord ask questions if he already knows the answers? Because he wants confession from your heart. He doesn't need information. He wants repentance. Where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Oh, man. (laughs) Isn't that our heart cry? 
Am I responsible for, for somebody else? Am I responsible for anybody but my own, my own thing? And the Lord said, what have you, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And in God's grace and his mercy, to a murderer, he says, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We're only four chapters into this book and we already encounter homicide. And the first murder is between two brothers. And the, the murder came from anger. Cain was angry over his offering. But I don't believe that Cain was angry at Abel. I think that Cain was angry at God. Cain was angry at God because what God did in refusing to look at his offering was God was saying, I'm going to say no to your lazy offering. You had no regard for bringing a gift to me when it all belongs to me in the first place. And if you're gonna have that kind of attitude, I'm gonna tell you no, like a loving father would tell his children, that's not okay. And Cain did not like that. Cain did not like being told no. This is not the last time God tells anybody in the Bible no. It's not the last time he's going to tell us no. But the problem is that when we hear no from the Lord, we interpret it as God is robbing us of our comfort and hindering us of our freedom. How dare you tell me no? I'm an American. Don't you know? Nobody tells me no. This is the South. You're not going to tell us what to do. We are stubborn people. And you're not going to tell us, no, I know you're God, but if you just give me two minutes, I can explain my point of view and you'll see where I'm coming from, God. We don't like being told no because it feels like it infringes on our freedoms and our comfort and losing comfort and freedom makes us angry, which drives us to rebel in sin. This is not the last place you'll see this. You guys remember a story about David and Bathsheba? He goes and he has an affair with Bathsheba, and a covered up, he has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed. He didn't do that because he was angry at Uriah or Bathsheba. He did that because the sin in his heart said, God's not going to tell me I can't have her. And when Nathan the prophet comes to him and he says, God gave you everything. Look at all the things that God has. He said, he said yes to all of this stuff. And he said no to this one girl, but you couldn't handle that. You couldn't handle the fact that God said no to this, and it drove you to anger and sin, because how dare God tell me no? So 
So God confronted Cain. And when he did, Cain was indifferent and dismissive and unrepentant. This is the worst condition of a heart that you could imagine. That when the Lord himself comes to you, and today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, comes to you and says, hey, there are things in your life that are out of whack. You are following the world structure and not God's. And you say, no, I'm not. You're wrong, not me. The response for God over Cain was to curse him. And the curse was to never yield abundance from the ground, to wander the earth as a fugitive away from his family and to carry a mark of shame to alert everybody around him of his sin. The curse that comes with sin today isn't that much different. If you look in the New Testament when Paul teaches the Corinthian church, what are you supposed to do with a man in your church who's unrepentant of sin? You leverage community to show him what he's going to miss if he doesn't repent of his sin. Community has always been used as God's way to remind us of the joys of following his ways. But the problem is that the enemy has come in and convinced us that church is just a club that you are a part of and that you attend once a week and nobody ever really gets connected into community and shares life with other people. So when that is leveraged as a thing that you miss, nobody really cares because you never had it in the first place. That's why God, that's why the enemy doesn't want you getting plugged into a local church and serving and using your gifts and loving people next to you and getting in a home and sharing small groups because he knows that if he can keep you from that, then that's not a thing that God can ever leverage on you when you do inevitably walk in disobedience. You follow? I hope so. This is complicated. But the truth is that this is, this, is, this is old stuff. This is thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. This is how God established things back then, and this is how he establishes things today. When we choose to walk in disobedience and reject God, he, it robs us of this abundant life. Look, you're not going to grow spiritual fruit in the darkness. You're talking about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those things don't grow in the dark. Those things will grow when you walk in the light. And if you choose to walk in rebellion and say, God, I'm okay with these three things, but the last four I'm not doing, you're walking in darkness and you will not grow spiritual fruit. So you're wondering, I don't know where my joy went. I don't know why I'm not a patient man or why I don't have self-control. It's because you have sin in your life. That's why. No, I don't. All right, Cain. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Sin, look, look, sin only pays one thing. There's only one deposit in your bank account when you go to the job of sin, and that's death. There's no joy. There's no abundance. There's no peace. There's only death. Cain reminds us of that curse. Now, at the end of this curse, Cain leaves. What, what happens to Cain? I'm going to read all of this. I'm going to give you a little summary, but this is chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. He settles east of Eden, and he establishes a culture that is both excellent and disruptive. It excels and it declines at the same time. They excel in things like herding. So he, he can't pull things out of the ground anymore, so what he's got to do is he's got to establish a herding culture like his brother that he murdered. 
So he starts establishing this herding culture, and we're told that he has descendants, great, 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 great grandkids that excel in things like music and technology. They become um, some of the leaders in the world in establishing things like bronze and iron. But then we see, um, like in verse 22, he names one of his descendants Tubal-Cain. That word um, broken down in Hebrew basically means like hammer and sharpen. So they're not just making musical instruments, they're also making weapons of war. So while this guy wanders away from God, you see him create a society where things excel and they, and, and they advance and, and there's a lot of advancement in, in technology and stuff, but there's also a decline in things like violence and evil because when you listen to the kinds of things that his descendants are singing about and talking about, what you find in verses 23 through 24 is his children singing about killing children, about murdering people and elevating vengeance to the point where, well, if God's gonna punish Cain sevenfold if someone touches him, then if anybody touches me, they're gonna have to, they're gonna be punished 70-fold at my own hand. Cain wanders away and he establishes a culture away from God where he teaches his children, you don't have to be accountable to God in his ways. You can do whatever you want and take whatever punishment you want on your enemies. There's no restraint. You can glorify violence and the greatest thing that you can do is sing about it. Sing and write songs about all the violence that you participated. Does this culture sound familiar to anybody? Does Does this sound familiar? A culture that says human life not important. What's important? What I want. Murder children. Make, make weapons of war just for the sake of seeing how much carnage we can cause. And we'll sing about it. We'll write songs about it. And people will rejoice about it. And they'll further this culture. Does this, does this sound familiar? This is the culture we live in. So when we look around and we watch the news and we say, well, how do we get here? How did we get here? This is how we got here. None of this is new to America. This was all birthed in the heart of man who said, I want my ways. I want to know what evil is more than I want to obey God's word. Jude 1 calls walking in this culture walking in the way of Cain. And it means that you love evil and you hate God. And that's why John the Baptist's words make so much sense when he stands up in front of all of the religious people and he says, repent. And don't just repent, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Turn from the way of Cain, from unrighteousness, and bear fruit continuously in keeping with that turning. So don't just say you support an idea or you believe in the gospel. Walk it out with your feet. Walk it out with your hands. Do something about what you say you believe in. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Genesis 4, 25 through 5, 32 chronicles all the descendants of Adam up to this guy named Noah. So I want to pick up the story with this guy named Noah in chapter 6. Genesis 6, 1 says, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters were born to them. I'm going to take a sip because this is heavy business. 
Because this is some of, some of y'all just like, oh, he's getting down into that, that weird stuff I like talking about. This is weird. Verse two, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So he's limiting the scope of man's impact on this earth. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, they were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, I'm going to continue down to eight and then I'll come back to that. Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin was causing evil to just compound upon itself in the heart of man. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, now let's go back up to six, because this is a question I know is just burning in your heart. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of man? And who are the Nephilim? Right? Well, there's two predominant theories. There's lots of other weird theories, but there's two predominant theories that most theologians agree on, and there's one that carries, in my mind, even more weight because the closer you get back to the first century, it is the idea that most of the first century theologians believe. So theory one is the idea that the sons of God are simply just men, maybe men from the lineage of um, Genesis 5, but the sons of God are just, they're dudes, they're men, right? The daughters of men were human women. So men and women. And the Nephilim were simply just a race of giants who were so big and so strong and so wild that they required their own name called out in the book of Genesis just so everybody remember who they were. That's, that's theory one. It's the simplest, tightest, put a bow on it, you're done. It requires no extra biblical thought. And if you hold to that theory, I got no problem with you. Right? That's, that is a valid theory when it comes to understanding this section of scripture. But there's another theory that actually dates back older, and the closer you get back to the first century, you find the writers like um, you know, St. Augustine, um, uh, even Josephus, people who are not followers of Christ, but just Jewish theologians at the time, they seem to reflect this in their writings. And the idea is that the sons of God were actually demon spirits, fallen angels, okay? Sons of God, demonic spirits, fallen angels. Where does this come from? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in Jude 6, Jesus, the, the writers wrote, speak of Jesus after he rose from the dead, proclaiming to the spirits in prison who did not obey when God waited in the days of Noah. So in the days of Noah, there were apparently spirits in the world who were not obeying what God told them to do. Okay, and that word spirits is a direct translation to supernatural forces. So the working theory is that there, there were spirits at the time, demonic spirits who were at work in this time. Job, if you go read through Job, um, you see that actually fallen angels are referred to as the sons of God. It says that often Satan, the sons of God, would come before the Lord, and that was one of the times when Job was accused. He said, he's only following you because, you know, you bless him. 
So the, the idea is that the sons of God in verse two are actually demon spirits. The daughters of God were actually human women, just regular old women, daughters, just ladies, gals, all right? And the Nephilim were the offspring of these demonic spirits and women. The idea that these demonic spirits just took the daughters of men, would marry them, and produce an offspring that would refer to as Nephilim, who directly translates as giants, but is a word that really means one who is large in size or raging or has um, uh, an over-the-top um, uh, violent personality. That's the Nephilim. But the problem with that theory is that we know that angels are not male or female. They can't reproduce. Because Jesus tells us that when we get into the uh, heaven and when, when Jesus is confronted, hey, um, this lady who was married like seven times, when she comes into heaven, who's going to be her husband? And Jesus says, no, you're going to be like the angels, not giving in marriage. So we know that angels, they don't reproduce. So how is it that we have this theory that these demonic spirits are reproducing with women? Well, there's something else that's a precedent in the Gospels, and that is the idea that Jesus, on a regular basis, would cast demonic spirits out of people. This is, there's precedent, this is regular. Demon spirits loved possessing the people that God had created. To, to do things like, like, uh, like the man who would cut himself constantly and throw himself on the rocks and just scream in the middle of the night just for no other reason but just to torment God's creation. So the working theory from some of the oldest theologians is that demonic spirits would demon-possess the men of this culture. These men would have no regard for marriage. They would take whatever woman they wanted. They would violate these women and they would produce this offspring that corrupted God's ultimate beauty and creation. And that theory is one of the reasons why we see God looking down on his creation and seeing the condition of sin and darkness growing so rapidly that the Lord would say in 6.6, 6, I am sorry I created this creation. Now that word sorry is not like our word sorry, like I can come in here and say I'm sorry. Like I, I, I'm, I feel bad or I regret. That's not what that word means. That word sorry is a word that describes sorrow and sadness. So when the Lord looks down, he, 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 you can just imagine him just like rubbing his forehead and saying, I'm so sorry. I have such sorrow over what has happened to my beautiful creation. But even in the depth of sorrow and sadness, God was still faithful because rather than destroying all of creation, he looked down and he saw Noah and he chose to save his family. I think probably the biggest takeaway from us is the sorrow that caused God's heart to break. I think the question that we should ask ourselves is what does sin do inside of us? Does sin create the same sorrow that it creates in the heart of God when he looks down at his creation? And the other question would be, are we, do we feel sorrow over our sin and do we feel sorrow over others' sin? Go to verse nine. Let's, let's finish this chapter because what is happening here is a setup for what's coming next week. 
Verse nine says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. And Noah, he walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Everywhere you look, violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, look, I have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The lengths of the ark are 300 cubits. The breadth is 50 cubits. The height is 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it uh, to a cubit above and set the door of the ark inside and make it the, the lower, the second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth will die and I will establish my covenant with you. Why is he, why is he bringing death on the earth? Because the wages of sin is death. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive. And they shall be male and female of the birds according to their own kind and the animals according to their own kind and the creeping things on the ground according to their own kind. Two of every sort shall come to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Now, Noah told, God told Noah to build a boat of salvation. And up until this point, we have no record that it has rained on earth. Okay? The last thing we heard a couple chapters ago is when God created earth, he created this water canopy around the earth that kept the, the earth at what I would imagine is like a perfect 72 degrees year round. So the concept that Noah is building a boat in the middle of nowhere for rain was kind of silly. What is rain? You know, it's going to take you forever to get that boat to water, Noah. Now, if we kind of dissect when this happened, if we go back to Genesis chapter five, Noah had his first child at 500 years old. That's a lot of years without kids, huh? 500 years old, he had his first kid. And then the flood came 100 years after that. Now we're told that his kids had wives. So if we add in maybe 25, 30 years-ish for the boys to find wives, then it probably took Noah about 70-ish years to build the ark. And so 70 years pass and Noah is outside building this gigantic ark. And what he's doing is he's preaching with every nail that he drives into every board that God is sending punishment on the earth for the wickedness of mankind. For 70 years, the world saw Noah building this boat and refused to repent. His boat was a sign that God was coming. His boat was a sign that God was saving. And for 70 years, the world ignored him. Now in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 to 27, let me just read this to you. Jesus said, it, just as in the days of Noah, so it will be again in the days of the son of man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. God is once again going to return to earth and bring a reckoning for the sin that exists in the heart of man. He promised to never flood the earth again, but he doesn't have to because when he comes again with a great trumpet sound, he's going to 
cleanse the earth with fire. He's going to punish the wicked. He's going to cast the wicked with the demonic spirits of hell into what we're told is the lake of fire for all time. But the good news is that just like Noah was building a boat out of wood to save his family, Christ came and provided a way of salvation similar to that boat. Salvation doesn't come through a boat anymore. Salvation comes through a person. And just like Christ, excuse me, just like Noah built a boat out of wood, Christ came and with wood reconciled all mankind back unto God. Now that message is the message that Noah preached for 70 years, and that message is the message that all of you have been asked to take to this dying world. All of you are boats, in a sense, being built up as a structure to house the presence of God, to preach one message and one message only. And that is not my way and some of his. It is all his way. So this is the reality check as we finish today. This is our message, the gospel message that God is coming again to judge the hearts of man, to settle wickedness and and, and punish it for all of eternity. And if you don't accept the gift that Christ offers, you will suffer the wrath of God against you and your sin. And you don't want that. But there is a man who rose from the dead and took your punishment so that you don't have to take it anymore. That is our message. The problem is that this world likes to hijack this message and change whatever it is that you're speaking on a regular basis so that it reflects more in line with what the world is happy and comfortable with, with what God is commanding you to follow. And if you go back and you start asking the Holy Spirit to examine your heart and your posts online and what you say with your mouth, my question to you is, do those things stand up to what the gospel message is, or is it more of your perspective on how you think things in this world should be? Now this is for everybody. I'm not standing here with a political agenda and I'm not standing here saying that one person or one society or one culture's voice is more valid than all, because I have made a decision to trade in my culture and this world for the kingdom of God. I'm told that in Christ, there is now no more Jew or Greek or Gentile or male or female or slave or free. So I have been told and we have been told that if we're going to follow the word of God, we have to let the things that give us an identity sit at the foot of the cross so we can take on a new identity. And that new identity leads us to serve and work so that this world can hear the message of reconciliation and can hear the message that God is saving people through a wooden cross and an empty grave. And if most of what you're saying is not that message, then you need to change your rhetoric. This is for everyone. Because Jesus tells you that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever you're saying 
comes from here. And if he's changing this, but what's coming out of it doesn't sound like change, then maybe you should stop letting things come out of it and get on your face and seek more change. Are you following me? Look, as a pastor, I love you. I love all of you. And I am not trying to stand here to, to, to heap worldly grief on you that only leads to death. I am trying to heap on you by the power of the Holy Spirit, godly grief that drives you to a place of saying, I'm wrong. God, change my heart. I don't want to be against you. I want to be for you, and I want you to use me to preach this message of salvation to a world that is going the way of Cain. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.